I was, uh, I was 10 years old when I was first exposed to pornography. And I was at the, uh, I was at my church, ironically enough, and traveled down. It was a really, really large church with a, a big set of grounds. I traveled down to the prayer gardens and on the prayer gardens, I found kind of rolled up, thrown on the ground, a Playboy magazine, weathered a little bit. And uh, somebody obviously wasn't doing a lot of praying at the prayer gardens. And so I knew it was wrong, but I felt this warm rush go over my body as I picked up the magazine and I began to flip through it. I had always wondered, like, what's underneath those clothes? What does a woman without any clothes look like? And, and so for me as a 10-year-old boy, I was just kind of enthralled with what I was seeing. And, and then I got nervous. I got worried that I was going to be caught or seen. So I took the magazine. There was a river that ran next to the prayer gardens, and I tossed it into the river. A couple uh, years later, I was exposed to pornography two different times. Uh, one was at a friend's house from church. He had shown me on his computer and, uh, you know, like, hey, check this out. Look at this. And I was just like, what is this? Uh, the, the, the other time was at my neighbor's house next door, and he had found a VHS tape. Do you guys remember what VHS tapes are? He had found a VHS tape that his dad had, and he was like, you've got to see this. You've got to watch this. So uh, that was the, the third time that I saw pornography. And then early, early in high school, right out of junior high, coming into high school, uh, my parents finally got a family computer. The only problem was it was dial-up, so you can't, you know, some of you don't understand, but you can't be on the internet and on the phone at the same time. It's weird. Uh, And so it was really slow as well. It was right in the middle of the living room, and I'm one of 10 kids. So let's just say, like, I didn't have a lot of privacy or free time uh, on my hands, and none of us had TVs in our room. We didn't have cable as a family. My point is this, that for me growing up, it was very, very, very difficult to access pornography. I was exposed to it. You could get it, but it was really, really difficult for me. Now contrast that with today's culture. 2007, the iPhone was invented, which means that if you're 12 years old or younger, you will literally not know a world without the iPhone. It's just what the world is. And that's good for a lot of reasons. It's brought a lot of good, uh, but it's also bad for a lot of reasons. And it's brought a lot of really, really broken stuff. Like this, for example, you can now access in your pocket 24-7 any type of pornography whenever and however you want to. And recently there is a uh, New York Times article titled, What Teenagers Are Learning from Online Porn. And in that article, it talks about a porn literacy program that high schools in New York are offering their high school students to help them know how to approach porn. Let me just read you a little excerpt from that article. But for around two hours each week, for five weeks, the students, sophomores, juniors, and seniors, take part in porn literacy, which aims, them, which aims to make them savvier, more critical consumers of porn by examining how gender, sexuality, aggression, consent, race, queer sex, relationships, and body images are portrayed, or in the case of consent, not portrayed in porn. Did you hear that? It's helping them know how to be savvier, more critical consumers of porn. Because of the world that we live in and the transition that's happened in the last 12 years, some, some actually cultural commentators would say that the world has changed more in the last 12 years than it has the last 100 years. And one of the things that they point out is that uh, the average age of exposure to pornography is between the ages of 8 and 11. 
So it's not a matter of, you know, if you'll get exposed to porn. Now it's a question of when will that happen? When will you get exposed to porn? And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you do with your kids. It doesn't matter if you homeschool, private school, public school, church, in and out of church. It doesn't matter. It's a question of when will your child get exposed to pornography. So as a result of this, I just want you to think about this for a second. What's happening in the church and what's happening in our city, porn and lust have just become ways of life. Virtually everybody, both in the church and in the city, is watching porn. It's just the way of life for us. It's a natural, normal thing that people do. It's kind of not talked about among church circles, but if you get outside of church circles, it's often talked about. It's not even something that people are ashamed of. It's just what we do. So I want to ask the question, how is that working out for our culture? How's that working out for you? Today, uh, if you're just joining us, you picked a really weird day to show up. Thanks for coming. Uh, If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, we are so glad that you're with us. Uh, We're talking about Jesus's view of humanity, how he wants us to live as humans. We're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, which is the most foundational aspect of discipleship to Jesus. But one of the things in the sermon that's really interesting is that Jesus is giving us a new vision for how to be human, a new vision. So you don't have to be a Christian to really wrestle with what he's saying. I think it's actually really helpful for you. Just know that we're talking about the issue of lust and divorce from Jesus's perspective. So you're going to get an inherently Christian perspective on these things. Now, you might not think lust and divorce are connected. That's weird. But in Jesus's mind, they are. And here in a little bit, I'll show you how. But let's jump in. Look at verse 27, and let's see what Jesus has to say. He says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, I'll just pause right there. Jesus does this, uh, you've heard it said, but I say to you type statement six different times in Matthew 5 alone. This is the, the, the third time that we've looked at in our series. It's actually the second time in Matthew 5. And he's just looked at the sixth commandment with anger. Now he's turning to the seventh commandment from Exodus twenty fourteen, And he's looking at this commandment, you shall not commit adultery. So he says, you've heard it said, that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what Jesus is doing here is interesting. He's actually unveiling for us the deeper meaning of the law. When God gave this law, the Ten Commandments and other laws, what he didn't mean was, hey, just don't commit adultery and everything else is fine. What he meant was, I don't want you to objectify or oppress anybody, even if it's with lust. But what had happened with the religious leaders of Jesus's day is that they had become really good at keeping the law to the letter of the law. Like they were keeping it very carefully. He says not to commit adultery. I'm not going to commit adultery. But what had happened over time is that they started to think, well, I I can't touch. That's a sinful act, but I can look. As long as I'm not touching If if I'm just looking, I'm not hurting anybody. So I can look, I can lust. Now some would say, well, you can't lust after your neighbor's wife because Jesus goes on to say, or the Old Testament goes on to say, don't covet your neighbor's wife. So uh, kind of what was really popular is even among Pharisees, you could kind of lust after anybody who wasn't married. It was free game. As long as you don't touch them, you can lust after them. And what Jesus is saying in this text, he's saying, hey, when I said that, what I meant was don't do that and don't even lust. Because if you actually commit lust, you're, you're, you're committing adultery in your heart. 
Now, I want to I explain what Jesus is saying here because I found this really, really helpful. Some people are like, this is impossible. He's laying down a command that is like biologically impossible. Like we cannot fulfill this call of Jesus to not lust. Well, let me just tell you what Jesus is not talking about when he talks about lust. He's not talking about noticing or appreciating beauty. It's not like if you become a Christian, you now have to see the world in blurry lenses, you know? Like you can't notice anyone attractive anymore. You can't even be aware that anybody's attractive. Someone beautiful walks in the room, you're like, they're just a person. I don't even notice that person, right? That's not what Jesus is talking about. We all notice and appreciate beauty. That's not wrong. He's also not talking about this momentary flash of sexual desire. I want you to think about anger and lust and how similar they are. If you were with us two weeks ago, we talked about two different words for anger. One is a type of anger that just flashes up in you. It rises quickly in your chest and then it dies down. Jesus is not condemning that anger. In fact, sometimes we don't even have control biologically over that anger that it just happens to us. The other anger that he's talking about is this nursing a wound where you get angry, but then you take another step and you nurse that wound and it leads to resentment and bitterness. And that's the anger that Jesus condemns in Matthew 5. Lust works similarly. There are times where you have a flash of sexual desire that almost on a biological level, you cannot control. And I want to call that temptation. Uh, This last week, I was at a coffee shop and I was doing some reading on Uh, the Jewish understanding of divorce in the Old Testament leading up to the first century and how that contrasted with the Greco-Roman divorce culture and various cases of remarriage. It was really, really fun reading, light reading. And uh, I was just kind of, you know, uh, like trying to prep for the sermon, thinking about it. And uh, as I was reading, I looked up and a very, very attractive woman walked into the coffee shop. She met all of the cultural definitions of beauty today and she was not wearing much clothing. And in that moment, I felt this flash and this desire to want to look at her. I wanted to look. And let me just say, like, I don't know this woman. I don't know her name. I've never seen her before. I don't want to sleep with this woman. I'm happily married. I'm attracted to my wife. I want to be faithful to my wife. But I felt in this moment, this desire rise up in me. I want to look at this woman. Now, it helps when you're working on a sermon on lust to not do that. So it was like, okay, I have to look away. Don't, don't, you know, that's not what Jesus is describing. What Jesus is talking about here is what you do with that flash of sexual desire that rises up. What he's talking about is when you go a step further and you look for a minute or you take a second glance or you watch that person walk away or you start to play out in your mind various you know, fantasies that you have, or you wonder about what's underneath the clothing or whatever. That is what Jesus here is condemning. He's, he's not talking about just noticing uh, beauty or noticing someone who's attractive. He's not talking about this flash of sexual desire, but it's, it's like anger. It's like, what do you do with that? Like, do you take it a step further? Or do, you, do you go another, another length of distance there and you look a little longer than you should? That's what Jesus is referring to. Martin Luther had a a distinction here that I I found really helpful between noticing someone attractive and lusting. He said this, he said, I cannot keep a bird from flying over my head, but I can certainly keep it from nesting in my hair or biting off my nose, right? What he's saying here is, you know, you cannot keep from someone attractive walking in the room, noticing that, but what you do with that, you can 
control. And that's what Jesus here is talking about. And notice what he says. I think it's helpful in the ESV. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, with the intent to lust. Frederick Bruner wrote a phenomenal commentary on Matthew. He says, every man who is looking at a woman in order to lust after her. Or Dallas Willard defines it this way. He says, anyone who looks upon a woman for the purpose of lusting for her, using her visual presence as a means of savoring the fantasized act. That's what Jesus here is condemning. And to say he's condemning, I I mean those words carefully. Jesus here is actually condemning lust. He has a lot to say about lust. In fact, he talks about hell two times in this passage connected to lust. He says that if you lust after a person, you're committing adultery in your heart with them. And then he goes on to say that if you can't keep from lusting, then you should gouge out your eye and cut off your arm. Jesus is serious about this. He's really, really opposed to lust. And I think it kind of begs the question for us, why? Why is Jesus so opposed to lust? You may never say this out loud, but some of you in your heart of hearts, you're like, it's not that big of a deal. Something we all do. And it's not like I'm hurting anybody. I'm not like, you know, doing the act. I'm not like touching the person. I'm not, you know, committing the crime. I'm just, it's just happening in my heart. It's not hurting anybody. Or is it? And this is what Jesus wants to press on. That actually it is, and and three reasons I want to give you for why I think Jesus is so opposed to lust. Here's the first one. Lust leads to the objectification of image bearers, specifically women. Now I realize that lust is not a male-female issue. It's it's not a male issue only. It's a male and female issue. Uh, Both uh, genders do this. But here's, here's what Jesus wants to say, is that lust leads to the objectification of all image bearers, but especially women. It's when you turn someone who is created in the image of God, meant to represent God in the world, and you turn that person into an object to lust after, into someone to arouse your own sexual pleasure. That's what Jesus here is talking about. Frederick Bruner says this. He says, lust is like anger and that it seeks power over another person. Both anger and lust put people down, though by seemingly opposite emotions, by hatred and by desire. But the emotions of anger and lustful desire unite in their egoism and their enjoyment of power over other people. People are used in both. The other person is no longer really a unique human being. She or he is now simply kindling, tender, a thing, a way for one to enjoy oneself, to express oneself, to feel one's powers. Jesus says that lust belittles people. It takes image bearers and turns them into objects. And, and it does this two ways, specifically with women. Um, it doesn't just turn their physical bodies into an object to lust after. That's one way that it objectifies women. But another way that lust objectifies women is what happens in a room when an attractive person walks in and all the guys are now watching her and there's other ladies in the room watching that event unfold is it's now communing, communicating something shameful to them that if you do not meet culture's definitions of beauty, then you're somehow unworthy to be loved, that you're somehow not attractive, that you're somehow, you know, to be, uh, to be just kind of discarded. You have no value. And I know women who deal with shame, who deal with guilt, who even deal with self-hatred because of culture's loud definition of beauty and that the way that people are lusting after that, and then you have these other women that are just kind of dealing with the aftermath of that reality. Lust objectifies both ways. It cuts both ways. And this is why Jesus is opposed to it. Another reason 
is because lust actually promotes self-worship. Lust promotes self-worship. So let's talk about masturbation because why not, right? Um, There's an obvious connection between masturbation and lust and pornography. And unfortunately, the Bible doesn't talk about masturbation. There's no verses that talk about it. Jesus never mentions it, but thankfully C.S. Lewis does. So we're gonna go with that. A close friend uh, of C.S. Lewis wrote him a letter and he just asked, like, what do you think of masturbation? You know, listing off all these topics. What about, what about this one? And C.S. Lewis responded, so you need to read what, what I'm about to say to you through the lens of two friends that have a, a sense of trust and love with each other, kind of two good friends. C.S. Lewis responds like this. For me, the real evil of masturbation would be that it takes an appetite, which in lawful use, leads the individual out of himself to complete and correct his own personality and that of another. And finally, in children and even grandchildren, and it turns it back. It sends the man back into the prison of himself, there to keep a harem of imaginary brides. And this harem, once admitted, works against his ever getting out and really uniting with a real woman. For the harem is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifices or adjustments, and can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no woman can rival. Pauses, grabs his beer, takes a sip, sets it back down. Among these shadowy brides, he's always adored, always the perfect lover. No demand is made on his unselfishness. No mortification ever imposed on his vanity. In the end, they become merely the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. After all, almost the main work of life is to come out of ourselves, out of the little dark prison that we are all born in. Masturbation is to be avoided as all things are to be avoided, which retard this process. The danger is that of coming to love the prison. Here's the point. His point is that it takes this good desire that God gave you that's meant to drive you out into the world and actually make something of your life for the good of other people and masturbation turns it in on yourself. And some of you, even men and women in the room, some of you you have spouses, you have people in your life that you should be sacrificing for, that you should be in love giving yourself for and instead what you're doing with this is you're turning all of that back in on yourself. It's self-adoration and self-worship. And that's why Jesus is opposed to lust. And then here's the third reason why. is because lust unleashes hell both now and it unleashes hell later. I don't have time to go into the details of how the New Testament talks about hell. Most of us, the way that we understand hell is more based on Dante's Inferno than anything that the New Testament actually teaches us. Um, but just to like give you the short version, that the way that Jesus understands hell is twofold. Hell is a present reality that can concurrently be unleashed on our world, and it's also an eternal place of judgment. It's not an underground torture chamber as much as a, conta- a place to, to contain evil eternally. So it's, an, uh, it's like a current reality and an eternal place of judgment. And what Jesus talks about here is interesting. He's saying that when you lust it actually produces hell on earth. It actually unleashes the powers of hell, both now and then it has the power to send you to hell later. And here's what he means. Like, heart adultery leads to actual adultery. 
I want you to think about this. No couple on their wedding day in their right mind is thinking in the back of their head, I hope this ends in an adulterous affair. On their wedding day, out of love, they're giving themselves to another person. But what can happen because of the brokenness of sin is that we can actually uh, go down the path of adultery. But here's the point. Nobody just wakes up and has an affair. You don't just like bump into an affair. An affair is something that happens over the course of time. And listen to me, it doesn't happen when you schedule the hotel visit. It doesn't happen when you have that intimate physical touch for the first time. It doesn't happen when you have a conversation where verbally you cross the line and say some things you shouldn't. It doesn't happen even, like you can go way, 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 way back. Here's where adultery happens. It's with the second look. It's with the extended glance. It's with the watching them walk away and noticing their body. It starts with lust. And what Jesus is saying is that when you lust, in your heart you are committing adultery. And that is the path towards actually committing adultery. Most people with lust know this to be true, but lust leads to addiction. And addiction leads to isolation because you've got to feed your addiction by yourself. That leads to sexual dissatisfaction because nobody can compare to the harem of people that you've seen in porn. And then that leads to relational dysfunction where you quit giving yourself away in love and it's all about you now. This leads to marital breakdown. And I just want to ask you, where does it stop? Because lust continues on way past this. It leads to sex trafficking. It leads to the Me Too movement. By the way, the Me Too movement is in sync with the rise of technology and the use of porn. Those two things go together. And then ultimately, this leads to the oppression of all image bearers, but especially women. And if you don't believe me, then let me just unpack some of the ways that porn unleashes hell on earth. There are a lot of studies being done currently on neuroplasticity. It's just this concept that the brain is not uh, this firm thing that can't ever be changed, but our brains can be changed dramatically. And, and what happens with porn is that it literally changes what we desire and what we find pleasurable. The, the more you view porn, the, the, the neurotransmitters that are firing, sending off pleasure and all these other things, the more you view porn, you actually have to increase the level of porn and the type of porn to continue to get the same type of pleasure in return. So what happens is porn becomes more and more aggressive so that you can find more and more pleasure just to maintain some source of pleasure. A a recent content analysis was done of more than 6,000 mainstream online heterosexual porn sites and it found that 33% of the videos fit the category of aggressive porn. Uh, Aggressive porn is defined as any purposeful action appearing to cause physical or psychological harm to another person. And women we're on the receiving end of the aggression more than 90% of the time. Those viewing porn were regularly reported higher levels of sexual callousness, a willingness to commit rape, and sexually aggressive behavior compared to the brain scans of those who do not view pornography. In a recent survey of 16 to 18-year-old Americans, nearly every participant reported learning how to have sex by watching porn. Can I pause here and speak to you dads? It's your job to do that not porn's job to do that. If you're a dad in the room, this is your job. If you're a single mom in the room, you have dads that can step into that space and help you have these conversations. And listen, 11, 12, 13, 14, that's too old. That's too old. It's not a matter of when or how or if they're gonna get exposed to pornography. It's a matter of when is that going to happen. These are conversations that you need to be having eight years old, nine years old, 10 years old, maybe even earlier. In our house, we start these conversations at five years old. 
many of the young women, listen to this, said in this survey, said that they felt pressured to play out the scripts that their male partners had learned from pornography. They felt badgered into having sex in uncomfortable positions, faking sexual responses, and consenting to unpleasant and painful acts in order to please the guys that they were sleeping with. Here's the honest truth. Porn unleashes misogyny. Porn unleashes the objectification of women. Porn unleashes human trafficking. Porn unleashes hell, which is why Jesus is saying, don't do this, and if you're going to do this, it's actually better to cut off your arm than go to hell over this, because it absolutely leads to hell. Now, here's the good news. This is heavy, this is hard, but the good news is that Jesus gives us a way out. He gives us help here. And here's what I love about Jesus, that Jesus is not just this master diagnoser of the problem, but he's also this phenomenal teacher that can tell us the way forward. He is both our savior and rescuer and our teacher, where if you follow the way of Jesus and his teachings, it produces not death, but life. And listen to what he says later in verse 29. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now, let me just preface this. Jesus is not encouraging self-mutilation here. Some really zealous Christians throughout church history have misunderstood what Jesus meant here. And some have taken what he said very, very literally. One was the church father, Origen who was otherwise brilliant, uh, wrote a lot of great stuff, but in, in a heat of sexual temptation, he literally castrated himself and he cited this verse uh, as his reason why. That's not what Jesus intends and that's not what he means. And we know that because if he did intend that, then he failed to mention the most obvious body part to cut off when he told us to start cutting off body parts, right? Your eye and your arm, like that's not the top one on his list if that's what he meant. Here's what he means. You need to take decisive and costly action against lust. He is calling us to take decisive and costly action against our lust. And I wanna just say this to you, for all of us in the room, men and women, because this is not a male issue. There are women in the room that struggle with this too. Studies show that actually women 18 to 24 are viewing pornography 5% more than men of the same age. So this is a both and issue that virtually everybody in the church and in the city struggles with. And what Jesus is calling us is we have to kill this because this is going to kill us first. We have to kill it before it kills us. We have to fight this because it will fight us. And fighting off lust is gonna cost you. It's gonna cost you. There's no way you can fight off lust and it not be costly. It might cost you owning an iPhone. There are worse things in the world than having a Nokia brick. There are. There's snake on there. The battery life's like eight days. It's amazing. Some of you need to get rid of your iPhone. And by the way, there's a guy in our church that used to work for Apple. He's a big nerd and I love him to death. And he can fix your phone so that you can't view pornography on it. You can email us at hello at frontlinechurch.com and I'll get you connected to him and we'll help you out with that. Maybe it means not watching certain movies or shows. 
I, I'm, I'm tempted to go on a big tangent here as your pastor, but I, what I'm going to do is just make a few comments. I am constantly shocked at the stuff that some of you watch, like floored. I, I, I'm not like, man, I'm a jacked up person. I've got a laundry list of past and sinful stuff that we can unpack. Maybe it's because I'm so immature, but in my house, the rule that we've placed is we do not watch anything with nudity, not because I'm so holy. It's because I know that if I see that, I'm going to lust after that. Maybe it's because I'm that immature, but my guess is most of you are that immature too. So my encouragement to you is like really wrestle with what you're viewing, what shows and what movies you go to see. Well, everybody at Frontline's gonna go see that too. I don't care about that. Maybe you shouldn't go see certain movies or shows. And by the way, I'm, I'm talking to Christians. If you're not a Christian, you can do whatever you want. But if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, like this is what he's calling us to. Maybe it means not having Wi-Fi in your house. It's a crazy thought. People did that for thousands of years. It's really not essential. You can go to Starbucks and get Wi-Fi. Maybe it means never being alone with your boyfriend and girlfriend. Maybe it means, and it probably does for most of us, it means actually confessing your secret sin. Here's the lie about secret sin, and with this issue especially, I'm the only one that wrestles with this. Not true. Over 90% of you do. This, this, is not a, this is not like a private thing. This is not like, no, no, you think it's secret. Virtually everybody wrestles with this. It's okay to talk about it. It's okay. It's not gonna shock us. You can come and confess sin and we're not gonna be like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize you were so horrible. It's like, yeah, welcome to life in 2019. Let's get you some help. Let's get you some help. Maybe it means getting inside of a discipleship group and treating that more than like hanging out with your buds, getting beers. Maybe it means like getting with people that are gonna call you out that you can actually be honest and say, here's my struggles. Here's what I'm wrestling with. I need help. And, and, and then I wanna offer this. We're gonna put this email address up, hello at frontlinechurch.com. If you need help with this, like if you need real help with this. You, you, you might be addicted to porn. Maybe this is something that you're looking at it once a week. Maybe it's something that it's more than that. I don't know your story, but if you need help, I'm giving you a way out. There's a guy in our church that used to struggle with this. He's had a couple years of victory. He, he found some stuff that's been really helpful and he can lead you through as a discipleship group. He can lead you through a class on this that's going to be helpful. It'll be like 10 to 12 weeks. He'll, he'll tailor it to you and your schedule. Reach out to me and I will get you connected to this guy. Reach out to me. Maybe you're a lady in our church. Please don't feel shame right now if this is a struggle that you have. Just reach out to us and we will have ladies on our team reach out to you and get you the help that you need. Here's what Frederick Bruner says. The meaning of Jesus' challenge is to take decisive action against the habit, thing, or person that though pleasurable and perhaps even seemingly indispensable for living is in fact ruining our lives. Jesus does not advise cautious, gradual action. He counsels surgery and immediately. He does not advise band-aids. He commands amputations, like emergency amputation in the long run. This mercilessness is the greater mercy. He's giving you a way out today. Here's his point, Matthew 5. It's better to go limping into heaven than to go leaping into hell. It's better to go limping in than to go leaping into hell. Now, here's what's really interesting about what Jesus does next. And I'm almost done. He takes a turn towards divorce. 
And that feels out of left field for some of us, and it feels disconnected, but it's actually really connected to what he just got done talking about. Let me show you why. Look at verse 31. And it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That's a mashup quote from Deuteronomy 24. It never appears in the Old Testament that way, but it's a mashup popular quote from Deuteronomy 24. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let me pause for just a minute and give you a pastoral caveat. Man, I know the stories in this room. Not all of you, but I know the stories in this room. And I know that for some of you, even the mention of divorce is enough to cause pain. It's enough to bring back a feeling of shame or a feeling of guilt or a feeling like you've been ostracized from the church. Some of you have been blacklisted from certain churches or people because of this. And I just want you to know that Frontline is a safe place for you. It's a safe place. Whether you were uh, on the, the side of divorce and it was your fault, or you were the victim of divorce, or everything in, in between, no matter where you are in this, you're loved, you're not blacklisted, we receive you, this is a safe place for you. Some of the most amazing godly men and women I know in our church have had a divorced background. Some of the most amazing godly men and women I know have married people who have been divorced. We have a pastor on our team that comes from a divorce story. So as a church, I don't have, I don't have time to get into all the nuances. It brings up a lot of questions about divorce and when it's appropriate and remarriage and is that appropriate and if so, when and how and all of that. I know that it brings up more answers than we have time to get into. Let me just explain Frontline's position on this and then you can email us and we can have coffee and unpack more about where we're coming from and answer your specific questions. But we believe that the Bible permits divorce. It never requires divorce, but it permits divorce in two instances. One is in sexual immorality. The word that's used here in Greek is porneia. It's where we get our word pornography. It's not just adultery. It's bigger than that. It's sec- any sexual deviancy, Jesus says, is grounds or permissible for divorce. The second uh, thing that we believe makes divorce permissible is abuse slash abandonment. We put those together because abuse is one way that you abandon your spouse. So abuse slash abandonment, those things are, we believe, biblically permissible. The The New Testament clearly teaches that any other reason outside of that is completely illegitimate. Any reason is illegitimate. Now, I want to encourage you, if you have specific questions or if you're wondering about your story or maybe you're in the place of like wondering if you should get a divorce and all of that, you need to reach out to us so that we can have a conversation, so that we can process and be a community as you go through all of that. But this is connected to what Jesus is saying about lust. How so? Well, in the first century, it's helpful to know the context of what Jesus was stepping into when he talks about divorce. Here's what's really interesting. Uh, in the first century, the, the, the Jewish uh, leaders, the religious leaders of the day, there had been this big debate about this issue of divorce. Everybody believed that there are certain reasons why you could get divorced, but one rabbi named Hillel believed that basically you could get divorced for any reason. And he read Deuteronomy 24, which doesn't ever say that, and he had twisted it to say something else that basically meant if your wife does anything you don't like, you can divorce her. Ladies in the first century and in the Old Testament could not initiate a divorce. And so what was happening is that the religious leaders of the day were starting this crazy divorce culture and it won that day. Rabbi Hillel's position won the day where people are going, well, she burned my toast, so I'm going to leave her. Uh, She, you know, I just 
fell out of love with her, I'm going to leave her. She's not attractive anymore, I'm going to leave her and go marry someone else. As long as I just give her a certificate of divorce, I'm doing the honorable thing here. And what Jesus is saying is, oh man, you've completely missed the heart of what marriage is. And actually what was happening with these Pharisees is that they were going, I'm not going to commit adultery because I'm married. So what I'm going to do is that woman over there is more attractive. I'm going to divorce her, give her a certificate, and I will go marry her instead. And then when she gets old, I'll divorce her and I'll go and marry someone else instead. They were being serial adulterers via divorce. And this is the issue that Jesus is addressing. Rabbi Hillel's teaching had won the day. So he steps into this culture and he says, listen, that's not a reason for divorce. In fact, marriage is an institution that God has designed and created. It's meant to be here and you're bringing it down here. And just like lust objectifies other people, your divorce is objectifying other people. It's treating them as objects to be thrown away when that's not what marriage is. This is what Jesus is coming up against. In my, in my uh, understanding, I think the NIV captures the heart of what Jesus is saying the best. It says, but I tell you, that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. Victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What Jesus is primarily concerned with in his context is the objectification and, and oppression of women that was happening where men were just giving them a certificate of divorce and running off for another prettier girl. Jesus is done with that. He says it shouldn't be this way. This is what marriage is. Now, I just want to pause and say this, that if you look at in the church and in the world, the reasons and the stats and the reality behind divorce, there's not a lot of difference. It's shocking how similar people in the church are to people in the world. And what Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount is saying that should not be because we are salt and we are light. And this community, this countercultural minority that's creatively putting on display the beauty and the reality of what life in the kingdom of God is, is meant to be salt and light in the world. It's meant to stand out as a city on a hill, and it should not be that way. The world says this about marriage. It says, yeah, but we just don't have anything in common anymore. Well, we fell out of love. It's it's just something that died out years ago. Our sex life isn't that great. We just have irreconcilable differences. He or she will never change. Or they're mean to me and I don't like it. And, and listen, I'm not trying to belittle. If that's your story, what you need is marriage counseling, not divorce. Marriage counseling, not divorce. Jesus is upholding the beauty of marriage. Yeah, there's some permissible reasons to get divorced. But he's saying don't objectify people and leave them in the, in the dust just because you want something else. That's what lust does. There's a great article I read on this. Andrew Nacelli says, the main thing that Jesus wants to say about divorce is this. Don't do it. It's not God's intention for marriage. The Pharisees want to talk about acceptable reasons for divorce. Jesus wants to talk about the sanctity of marriage. They want to talk about when a marriage can be broken. He wants to talk about why marriages shouldn't be broken. If all you hear are the reasons a marriage covenant might be broken, it's like learning to fly by practicing your crash landings or training for battle by practicing your retreats. Whatever exceptions there might be, the main thing is that marriage is supposed to be permanent. Jesus is saying people are too valuable to lust after and turn them into objects or to divorce and turn them into something that can just be easily thrown away. This is what Jesus is teaching. By the way, this set of teaching captured 
the early church. It's what made them so salty and bright in the first century. And this is one of the reasons, their sexual ethics, one of the reasons why the early church grew so rapidly. Last quote, and I'll be done. This is from a book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. Alan Kreider writes this. He says, Justin Martyr points to Christians in Rome and in every nation who have repudiated adulterous glances, avoided second marriages, and committed themselves to lifelong continence. That word continence here means sexual restraint. Justin maintains that the Christian's sexual discipline attracted to the faith an uncounted multitude of those who have turned away from incontinence. One of the most missional things you can do is to repent of lust. One of the most missional things you can do is stay married. One of the most missional things you can do is fight off porn. That's what our world needs to see because it is headed down unleashing hell and wreaking havoc in our world. What would it look like if a group of people stood up and said, not the way of Jesus, not the way of Jesus?